James chapter 5. James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we provided some underneath the chairs there. And in the Bibles we provide, it's on page 1013. 1013. James chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. James 1, James 5, 1 through 12. Well, I'm not sure how you spend your Saturday afternoons, um, or, or maybe some of you were working on Saturday yesterday, um, but yesterday is, as I was uh, around the house for the most part of the day, I took the kids for a bike ride at, at one point, um, but mid-afternoon on a Saturday, front door, knocks. I'm surprised. I mean, who's, who's knocking on a Saturday afternoon? I go to the door, I open it up, and guess who it was? Salesman. On a Saturday afternoon. Hey, it didn't mess up a nap, so, you know, I was cool. I open the door, I'm having a conversation with a guy who's trying to convince me that I should change my TV, cable, internet, phone provider to his company. I'll refuse, I will not share the company that he was trying to convince me to. And so we get in this conversation, he says, so if I can convince you that I can knock $50 a month off your bill, will you switch? And so he's got this paper, he pulls it out, I mean, he's ready. He's got his plan in place, He's going to tell me all the benefits, you know, DVR, how many TVs do you need hooked up, what's the Wi-Fi speed, I can beat their Wi-Fi speed, you're going to get a phone with it, you, I mean, you can call anywhere you want, it's going to be unlimited, um, and this is the price for the first year, and this is the price for the second year. So just a little inside information, I felt bad for the guy because the, I, he couldn't beat the, the, the deal that I've already got, and so I, at one point I was like, look, I'm, look. I'm sorry, I don't want to waste your time, but, you know, I'm not going to switch. You, you really can't beat the deal that I've got. And he said, well, here's what let me do. I, I know, like, if you had to get out of your contract, um, usually, you know, you've got to pay a fee. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. He said, um, you know, I'm going to, after the first 30 days, I'm going to deposit $300 into your account, which should cover that fee, and you'll have even more. Now, he said, now, here's what I'm going to do, because usually you're going to have to have a fee to get out of your contract. You guys following me? If you're in with a contract, you, you say you've signed up for two years, if you get out of that, before that, they're going to they're gonna throw some fees on you. So he says, here's what you need to do. You need to call them, and you need to tell, tell them that you are transferring to this address in Somerville, because they don't have... Your, what you have at that address. And so what they're going to do is they're going to say, hey, I'm sorry, we can't transfer to that address. And say, so, well, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to have to switch. I need you to, to get me out of the contract. And they said, they'll get you out and they won't charge you. Now, obviously, this is a salesman. He's trying to pitch me why I should switch. But look, I'm sitting here. He doesn't know who I am. You know, he has no clue that I'm going to get up and, and preach today and we're going to be talking about money and, and honesty and standing before God in the last judgment. But what's he basically telling me to do? Go lie to get money. If money is your God, you will do whatever it takes to get it. 
no matter what it does to yourself or even others. When we come to James today, the first six verses is going to be just a a wailing condemnation on the rich. And it's not the rich in the church. He's basically, he, he, he is going to condemn non-believing rich in the world that are oppressing those in the church. James has in the church these people that have been oppressed by rich landowners, and they're going through suffering. And so here's what he is. He's first going to address the nature of the rich. And then he's going to turn and he's going to encourage those who have been oppressed by the rich. So why should you listen to what James has to say today? You may say, hey, man, I'm in the church. I'm a follower. If James is addressing the non-believer, man, how does it relate to me? This is it. The first truth that I want you to get today is this. Do not envy the fortunes of the rich. That's the first truth I want you to get. Do not envy the fortunes of the rich. You may, you're sitting here, you're looking, and we're going to see here in James in a second. You say, man, how does this relate to me? You, you may say, man, I'm not rich. You may be sitting here, though, and you may be looking at that person who is rich. You're like, I wish I had that. I wish I was that person. And so James is going to address us in that matter. And then I want to talk as we wrap up about, man, when we're facing persecution and suffering, whether that be from rich oppressors or maybe that be what's going on in the crisis in the world today, as you've heard about ISIS and what's going on in Iraq, man, how does a Christian respond to suffering? And James is going to address that. So let's go. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which kept back your by which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you you guys hear this condemnation that James is heaping upon the rich. I mean, it starts here in 5.1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming before you. This language, weep and howl. If you were to go in the Old Testament, you hear some of the prophets that were, um, the judgment that was laid out by the prophets in the Old Testament. This is imagery of the indictment of when the day of the Lord would arrive. The prophecy of the Old Testament, he's reaching out, he's he's condemning the sinful practices of the wicked and using this language of weep and how James is taking that and applying it now to the rich. Now, he's he's applying it to rich non-believers. So we need, I want to just step back for a second. You're, You're here today and you're saying, hey, man, I probably would fit in this rich category. And by fact, most of us, by being in North America, 
related to the world would probably fit in this rich category. James isn't condemning all rich, all the wealthy. I don't want you to walk away thinking that. What is he condemning? He is condemning the misuse and sinful use of of wealth. So he's not, he's not saying, come now, you rich. Everybody, no matter what you have, he, he's addressing particularly non-believers who are rich in using their wealth in a way that does not, does not magnify the greatness of God. And we're going to talk later about, man, let's say you are rich. How, do you, how can you be rich in such a way that magnifies the glory of God? And we'll talk about that in a second. But we should not miss this. When we go and read through the Gospels, you know what Jesus says about the rich? He says, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me, don't clock out here. We need to hear this. We don't just need to, to put them in a separate category. We need to hear the warnings labeled to the rich because Jesus addressed those very particularly as a hindrance to responding to the gospel. So why? Let me just ask this question. Why then does James include this section directed at non-believers in this letter to the church? Well, Calvin proposed two reasons, and I believe this lays out the trajectory of where we're headed today. The first one is this. James included these six verses here so that you, faithful believers, would hear the miserable end of the rich and not envy their fortunes. So if you're a believer here today, you're a follower of Christ, as you look at these first six verses, James has included these to say, look where they're headed. Look at the destruction they're going to face, and do not envy that. But then second, James has included these here, because that knowing that God will judge those who misuse their wealth will help us to endure suffering and oppression with patience. And that's going to be the last half of this 7 through 12 that we're going to look at today. So why shouldn't you envy the fortunes of the rich? Look here in verse 2. The first one is this, they hoard their wealth. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. They hoard their wealth. Why is it not wise to hoard wealth in the last days? Here's the deal. Everybody get this. Wealth will always be lost without exception. You will either lose it now, it'll burn, it'll corrode, it'll rust, it'll be eaten by moths, it'll be stolen, it'll be destroyed, or you will lose it when you die. But without exception, Every earthly treasure will be lost. Hey guys, just let that sink in. Because we live in such a materialistic world where it's the pursuit, it's the next gadget that's on the list. It's that. And I'm gonna put, you know, even as we think through our budgets, it's like, man, it's just, man, this very next thing, the pursuit of it, they will always be lost. Just take a road trip with me real quick. Hop in your car. We're gonna drive to the junkyard. This past week, last week before that, we did some cleaning out here at the Boys and Girls Club, one of our teams, cleaned out this back closet here. Some of you guys have seen it at floods a couple times a month. 
And um, it's nasty. It's got mold. We cleaned it. A lot of it was left up here. I had to come up and, and I loaded it into my car this past week and took it to the dump. You guys just take a road trip here with me. In, that, in the car that I was taking to the dump were things that probably some of you maybe even have bought this past week. There were some paintbrushes. There were some mops. There were some broken trash cans. At one point, we're good. Now we're junk. I'm going to the dump. And I just, I just want you to visually just imagine a dump. Everything one day is headed there. All of it. In a couple years, that's where your iPhone's probably going to end up. You go to a car junkyard and just see cars sitting, rusting, corroding, decaying. All, many of these things that we put our treasure in are going to end up in a junkyard. This is what James is, is rebuking the rich. You are foolish and do not be envious because it's not going to last. It's not. It will not last. So not only are the rich misguided because of their priorities, they've put their money in things that are not going to last They've also deprived others from life. And we're going to see this later in the text. Look, if you store up treasures on earth, and this is what James is rebuking, these rich people have taken advantage of other people. So what's the next? Why shouldn't you envy the rich? Because they've hoarded, but they've also defrauded others. Look here in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. They have people that are working for them, and they're withholding their wages. So in their hoarding and pursuit of treasures, they have deprived others of life. We're going to see later on in verse 6 where it says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous. And what he's even alluded to there is that by you withholding from giving to others, you have basically starved them to death. Why do we hoard? Just pose that. And just search your own heart and soul here for a few minutes. And why do we hoard? Why do we, and I'm using this word, word hoard, but store it. That imagery, you've stored up treasures. It's this storing up. It's this hoarding. Why do we do that? What's going on in our hearts that leads us to just keep everything? At the heart of much of our hoarding is a means of replacing God. You guys need to get this. It's the thought, if I have enough, I'll be safe. I'll be secure. I won't have to worry. If I have enough money, if I have enough things, I can provide for all of my desires. I won't need God. Why would I need God? This is why Jesus said it is so hard for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does a rich person need? It's the illusion that if you have things, you don't need God. But what the rich person forgets and overlooks is that one day when they die, everything that they have will be lost. So not only does wealth not bring any lasting benefit, it also 
stands as a witness against them. Do you hear this imagery, this language here in these verses? Listen to this, guys. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be what? Evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I mean, these are words of judgment here. At the end, when Jesus Christ returns, James is saying, the rich, if they do not repent and turn from their ways, all of this that they've stored up is going to be evidence that's going to crowd against them and is going to condemn them. It's going to be, when they stand before the judgment, oh, Jesus, look at all this. This is what you spent your life doing. Storing up treasures. Look at the next verse. Go down to verse... Four, behold, the wages which you have um, withheld from the labors and mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, they are crying out against you. So this hoarding up and storing up, not only does it not last and provide any lasting benefit, at one day, those are going to be crying out against you and giving testimony at the return of Christ and will stand judgment against you. They hoarded wealth, they defrauded others. Verse 5, they lived in self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And then they oppress the righteous. They condemn, verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not Resist you. This righteous person is the follower of God who's experienced persecution by the rich. And by, by him saying, You have condemned and murdered, by them withholding the payment that was due them, they have starved them to death. Man, here's the reality as you look at these verses when money becomes your God, you will do whatever it takes to get it. You'll defraud others, you will condemn, you will kill, you will, you will turn inwardly on yourself, in luxury, and in self-indulgence. But you need to get this. They will face the righteous judgment of God. Do not envy the fortunes of the weak, of the rich, because they hoard, they defraud, they live, they oppress, and they will face the righteous judgment of God. Go back to verse 4 here. The last part says that this defrauding, it's crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When I had this conversation yesterday with this guy about why I should switch this company, what did he remove and forget from the equation? Hey, you know what? I may trick the company that I'm with, if I call them and say, hey, I'm transferring to this location. I mean, they don't know, right? How are they going to verify that? They might could. But what did he remove from the conversation? God sees everything. Look, there is nothing that you can do that God does not see. And so maybe it's not money. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know where you're living in secrecy. I mean, what are you trying to cover up? What are you here today? You got in your car and like, okay, I got to put my, 
I got to put my Christian, you know, my good clothes on, and I got to pretend like everything's together. Hey, look, you may fool me, you may fool the person that's sitting beside you, but you will never fool God. And when you stand before the judgment, look, one of the arguments that James is going through here is that, hey, Jesus is coming back. There's going to there's gonna be a day of judgment one day that every single one of us will stand before God. And you may fool everything on this earth, but you will not fool the Lord of hosts, the righteous judge. So what do you do, man? You're here today. You've been living a lie. You've been putting on a show. You know what the good news about the gospel is? The good news about the gospel is that I can take my sin my lies, my pursuit of wealth, my hoarding, my defrauding, my killing, and I can come to Christ and I can say, forgive me. I've sinned against others and I've sinned against you. And the good news of the gospel is this. When Jesus died on the cross, Christ died to pay the penalty of sins and he didn't just die to pay you know, some of the small sins that we may say are small, all sins are equal in the sight of God. Jesus Christ died for the largest. Man, he died for your hoarding. He died for your defrauding. He died for your killing. That if you will come to Jesus and confess, hey, this is my sin, this is what I'm hiding from, this is what I'm covering up, and say, forgive me. And if you will repent, the Bible says, repent, and turn, if you will turn from those and live in the light. You see, to hide and to, and to put on this idea that, man, everything's okay is to live in darkness. It's deception. It's, some, it's to make everybody think you've got it together, but God knows what's going on. And so it's to come in the light when you come to the gospel and you say, man, this is who I am, God. I'm a sinner and I deserve your judgment, but I know Christ died for my sins. I believe it and I'm turning. Empower me by your spirit to live and follow you today. Call out to God and ask him to forgive you. Believe in Jesus and turn by the power of the spirit and follow Christ. Look, you don't have to face judgment with fear if you'll come into the light. So James is rebuking And he's saying, do not envy the rich because they will face a judgment in front of the Lord of hosts. He says here in verse 6, sorry, at the end of verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Douglas Moo, New Testament scholar, says this, the day of slaughter is a description of the day of judgment. James' point then is that the rich are selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and wastefully spending it on their own pleasure in the very day when God's judgment is imminently threatened. He's saying, I mean, the judgment, Jesus' return is near, and in this very nearness, you're going out and living in self-indulgence. He continues, The last days have already begun. The judgment could break in at any time. Yet the rich, instead of acting to avoid that judgment, are by their selfish indulgence incurring greater guilt. Get this. They are like cattle being fattened for the kill. Let me ask you just a pointed question. I don't want to assume everyone in here is a believer and a follower of Christ. You may be one of the rich here. 
Are you being fattened for the kill on the day of judgment? Please repent and turn so that you don't face this judgment. One day, there will be a great reversal. That's what James is saying. One day it's going to happen. The, the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be saved and delivered. So what's going on is the rich, as they're storing up treasure, at the same time they're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. So do not envy the fortunes of the rich. Let me just give you a few encouragements on money here. Um, and I'll just say that, man, we're going to have a series on money coming up in November. We're going to do a four-week series on money. So obviously I'm not going to hit everything here, but I want to give you a few encouragements. Man, we may try to, to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. That's what Randy Alcorn, he's written some great um, stuff on money and the treasure principle. We may try to divorce faith and finances. I've got my faith over here and church thing over here and my finances, but God sees them as inseparable. Another New Testament scholar, Craig Blumberg, says this, stewardship of material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship. Do you get that? Stewardship of material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship. You claim to follow Christ, Jesus and James are going to say, well, let me see how you use your money. Because how you use your money reveals where your treasure is. Let's be honest, right? Where you use your money is where your treasure is. So a few encouragements here. Look at Matthew chapter 6. 19 through 21. You may even hear this echoing in James. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, look at where you spend your money and that's probably a good clue of where your heart is. So you can't take it with you. You can't take anything with you. All wealth will be lost. So what do we do? What are some encouragements on money? I mean, you can send it ahead. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, it's, the principle is this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Don't live for the here and now. Live in light of eternity. How do you want Jesus to find you when he returns? When Jesus returns... How do you want Jesus to find you? I think this is another great question. The, the minute after you die, what do you wish you would have done with your money? The minute after you die, because here's reality, everything in a Roth IRA, in a retirement account, whatever, when I die, man, my hands are off. It may go to somebody else who may waste it and blow it in a minute. But the moment that I die, what do I wish I would have done while I had the chance with, this, with the resources that God had given me? And so 1 Timothy, Paul gives some encouragements to the rich. I told you I was going to give you this. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, be, to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Hey, in James, where was the treasures being stored up? On earth. He says, you're, you're storing up treasures in the last day. But Paul and Timothy says, here's what you were to do. You were to do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, and storing up treasure in eternity. The only way that you can store up treasure that'll last for eternity is to send it on ahead. So what does that mean? I'll give you an example. Some of you supported our Toronto team. We've got 10 right now in Toronto. Some of you financially gave to make that possible for some of them. That's an eternal investment. That's giving in, in the kingdom. Some of you guys know that Lee and I are about to travel Thursday to China for two weeks to adopt our girl. And many of you have given, whether it was through our adoption fundraiser or whether it was through um, buying a T-shirt. I mean, that's an example of an investment that, man, is going to have eternal impacts. We've got an upcoming India trip. Tanner's going to share, share about our announcements today. We're, gonna, we're initiating, continuing this partnership in India. We're hoping to take a team of four to six in November. You know what that's going to cost per person? About $3,000. I mean, when you give for the sake of great commission or mission or others to help the needy, to help the poor, to care for the widow, to care for the orphan, that is an investment in things that will have eternal impacts. So I would encourage you with this. If you, I mean, just to search your heart, how can you prepare your heart in such a way that it doesn't chase after materials of this world? I would say give first, save second, spend last. And simple encouragement, give first. What do we usually do in our giving? And this is what Timothy, he says, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Usually our giving is an afterthought. We spend, we save, and if there's any left over, I'm gonna give. What does that communicate about your priorities in life? Man, when it comes to the gospel and with Christ, he's gonna say, man, your heart will be where your treasure is. And so I guarantee you, if you give to the things that have eternal impact, watch your heart chase after it. If you put money to send this Toronto team, I guarantee you, when they get back, you're gonna ask them, hey, how was your trip? I mean, your heart follows where you send your money. Give first, save second, spend last. Second encouragement as we move on. Don't envy the treasures of the rich. Second, endure suffering with patience. Now James turns and he addresses those that have been enduring suffering. And, and look, it, it's a pretty easy, simple challenge. Verse seven, be patient. You guys get that? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, what's he say again? Be patient, second time. Verse eight, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and 
merciful. The main thrust of the encouragement to the believers who were oppressed by these non-believing rich is this. Be patient. They were to adopt an attitude of patience in the midst of suffering that includes an expectation that when Jesus returns, the fortunes of this life would be reversed. Be patient in the hope Jesus is returning, and when he returns, the fortunes of this life will be reversed. And so you can endure suffering with patience, first of all, because Christ is returning soon. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus is returning soon? James says it multiple times here. Be patient, verse 7, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We see it right there. Go to verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord's at hand. First of all, he says, be patient. The Lord's coming. He's going to return. But then he says, look, it's at hand. It's near. And so here's the challenge for us. We live in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and no one knows when the second coming of Christ is. That's why James, many years ago, could write, the coming of the Lord's at hand. Hey, they knew the Lord was returning. They did not know the timeline. And so Douglas Moo, New Testament scholar, also says this about the return of Christ. He says, every generation of Christians lives or should live with the consciousness that the parousia, the return, could occur at any time and that one needs to make decisions and choose values based on that realization. He could come at any moment, so it matters the way that I live. He continues, so it was true in James' day as it is in ours. We need to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Endure suffering with patience. Jesus is coming And he could come at any time. But that's not the only thing he says. Second, he says, you can endure with patience because he will save and deliver the righteous. Why is it a comfort that the return of the Lord is near? I mean, what happens when Jesus returns? What happens? Salvation, redemption. Hey, we talk about being saved now, but my hope in salvation now is that By faith in Christ, I will escape the judgment to come. So it's as if the judgment has already happened. When Christ comes, he will restore and redeem all things. A new body. Man, anybody struggle with sickness? Anybody struggle with health, with cancer, with brokenness, broken relationships, broken marriages? The poor. When Jesus returns, his inheritance is ours. We will have a new body, and all of these things will be reversed. That is the hope of the return of Christ. He will save, and he will deliver those who place faith in him. But the third reason that we can endure with suffering is that he will judge and punish the wicked. We see this many times in this text. Look here with me in verse 9. James says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When you are wronged, when somebody wrongs you, when somebody hurts you, what do you want to do? I know what you want to do. Man, just go watch, come and like spend a day with me and watch what my kids do. 
when Owen, my three-year-old, punches Emmett in the neck, my six-year-old, do you know what Emmett wants to do? He wants to kill him. I'm just laying it out there. He's a sinner. They both need Jesus, all right? You can pray for my kids. They need Jesus just like everybody else. My kids are sinners, and so they want to retaliate. You offend me, I'm going to dish it back out. Is that what James tells us to do? Let me ask you this. The way you respond when somebody wrongs you tells a lot about your relationship with Christ. You see, here's what James encouraging the believers. Man, you've got these rich that are oppressing them, even to the point of death. They're withholding their pay and starving them to death. And what's James telling them to do? Be patient. Endure. The Lord will judge. Implicitly, what James is telling them is that vengeance is the Lord's. Romans 12, verse 17 says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how we're to respond. And this is what James says. You do not avenge. The encouragement that Jesus is going to return and that he will judge the wicked helps me know that when I'm wronged, I can display the gospel because you know what I, you know what these rich oppressed need? They need the same gospel that changed my life. And the people that wrong you, they need the gospel. And so you want to respond in a way that doesn't elevate yourself but magnifies the glory of God. And how can you do that? You can endure, you can be patient, and you can point people. Hey, this doesn't mean when James says be patient that we keep our mouth shut and don't say anything. Look, as Christians, we ought to stand up and speak out against injustice. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who takes vengeance, not mine. And so this ISIS crisis in Iraq, let's speak up. That is wrong. Christians being beheaded, if they don't convert to Muslim, to Islam, that is wrong. Speak out against injustice. But what I say to the believers is endure, be patient. It doesn't mean you're not wise. Man, be smart. I'm not, I'm not walking out in front, you know. But God will one day repay all injustice. So endure with patience. James gives us three examples as we wrap up. The first one, see how the farmer waits in verse 7. There, when they planted their crops, there was the early rain, and then there was the late rain before the harvest. And so the farmer patiently endures that time between the first and second rains so they can go and reap their harvest. In the same way, you endure between the first and second coming of Christ. You don't know the time, but you wait patiently. The second example, he says, is the prophets. He says, look at the prophets in the Old Testament. Many of them were persecuted for proclaiming the will of the Lord. I don't have time today, but go look at Hebrews chapter 11. And just read through this chapter where it talks about the prophets. James suggests that doing the will of the Lord will sometimes incur suffering. 
Look, Jesus never promises that if you follow me, you'll never have suffering. And so I'm just, man, if you're oppressed today, if you're suffering today, the hope is that one day God will repay. He may do that in this lifetime, but you may wait till the end. For instance, the example of Job, the third example. You guys know the story of Job in the Old Testament, how God allowed Satan to test him, and he lost everything. Job endured, he never lost his faith, and at the end, God restored his fortunes. But get this, God may not restore your fortunes on earth, but one day, everything will be made right, and that is the hope of the gospel. Matthew 5, verse 11, these are similar to the words of Christ what James is saying. He says this, Blessed are you when, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Where? In heaven. It may not be great here, but it will be great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is our hope. Jesus will make all things right. You know what? This is similar to how James began as we wrap up James next week. How did James begin in James 1? Consider it per joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Here's what you can rest in. God has a plan. Just like he did with Job, he has a plan in your life and he's sanctifying and he's using these trials to make you the person that he wants. Last challenge today is verse 12. Do not envy the treasures of the rich. Endure suffering with patience. And then finally, be trustworthy in what you say. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Under this theme of condemnation and the return of Christ, not only should we patiently endure suffering and leave vengeance to God, in light of the return of Christ, we ought to be found trustworthy in our words. So I'll just wrap up by asking this. Are your words enough? When you say something, can you say it in such a way that it does not need to be accompanied by a signed document, legally correct and complete? I mean, as Christians, we ought to be trustworthy and we ought to be able to, he's saying this, your yes ought to be yes and your no ought to be no. I don't think James is saying that we ought to never take an oath. His point is this, is as Christians, we shouldn't need an oath. That I ought to be able to say something and you trust my word. This displays the glory of God. You know Why? Because God's word can be trusted, and so should ours. And so the point of our sermon today, the point of this text in James is this. Patiently endure suffering as you await the return of the Lord, the righteous judge. Don't flee. Don't run after the rich. Let's be trustworthy And let's eagerly await the return of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word today. God, would you search our hearts? 
God, we pray you would change us these desires for the rich, for wealth, for prosperity. God, we want to be rich in Christ. As we read earlier in Psalm 37, we want to delight ourselves in you. We want Christ to be our greatest treasure. God, help us not to be deceived in thinking that all the treasures of this earth are what provide satisfaction. God, help us to think rightly. They will all one, way, one day vanish. So God, I pray even today that we would repent of our materialism. God, I pray you would foster in us great generosity that as, as Paul challenged Timothy, we would be generous in good works, that we would store up treasures in heaven by being generous and ready to share with many in need. God, would you loosen the chains that we have on the things of this earth and help us to know that heaven is our home, not here, and to live expecting your return. God, help us to eagerly await and long for the reward that is great in heaven for those who endure suffering. God, we ask all this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.